Hey everyone, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. So here's something you might want to know about me. My grief resume, as it were, is substantial, weaving throughout my personal and professional lives. Not something to brag about, just how my life has worked out. But then again, yours might be that way too. So I figure, let's talk honestly and openly about what it's like. This podcast series will include my candid reflections about my own grief journey, along with some authentic, intimate, meaningful, and honestly, sometimes joyful conversations I'm having with friends and even strangers about their own grief journeys. I hope you will discover something new, find comfort in your shared experience, or perhaps pick up a phrase or action that might help you or someone you love. And no doubt, along the way, you will be reminded that just when you least expect it, bam, there comes grief, that sneaky bitch. On this episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, I sat down with my dear friend Rami Suskin at her photography studio here in Austin, Texas. We talked about her early experiences of watching and caring for her father during her formative years as he endured nearly a decade-long journey with Lou Gehrig's disease and how that period and her subsequent grief journey has shaped her outlook on life and love and even how she shows up now as a caregiver for her mother. Rami and I, as you will discover, grew up in the same Midwestern town together, but didn't actually know each other until we ended up in the same city five years ago. In this interview, just like in life, our conversations are always candid, humorous, and very direct. So I just dove right in by asking her about her earliest memories of conversations in her family around death and grief and loss. Funny, I haven't thought about this in such a long time, but as soon as you started asking me that question, I thought, um, and, and probably we may want to back up at some point and tell the story of how come I'm here talking Absolutely. to you, but it also may just reveal itself, and here's one way. So when my dad was maybe, I think at this time I was about 16 years old, so my dad had been sick with Lou Gehrig's disease since I was about 11, so that range of like five years of this long journey of seeing him in this deep, you know, physical decline, going from very athletic to, you know, being bedridden and paralyzed and on life support. And this when he when when he was diagnosed, we knew it was terminal. So the fact that he was alive for as long as he was was the surprising part. But so we were facing this impending death. And it was this strange microcosm of reality, right? Because we're all going to die. We all know we're going to die, but we don't have any idea. So the human ego protects us from this idea that we're going to die. But in his case, we were always like, he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. Maybe today. We just don't know. Life support could shut off or something else could happen. And then we would forget. And in the same way, sort of his slow progression towards the inevitable death from this disease normalized to the point where we also were kind of like forgetting that he's going to die. Maybe we don't know when he's going to, maybe he's not. So we were in that kind of a space. And, um, and I think we would fluctuate in and out of that depending on what we had to deal with at our house a lot as a way of normalizing and being normal teenagers. And, you know, my mom needing to go back to work and just how you deal with life as human, as a human. Yeah. Um, so there was this one day when I was, walking near the bank that um, I went to uh, with a friend and someone I knew sort of who knew about my dad or my parents called out to me across the parking lot like hey Rami how are you how's your dad and without thinking like teenagers do I said he's still dying <laughs> like real lighthearted. yeah but also a little I think I was a little like why do people ask me that question like yelling you know across the, the parking lot? You know he's dying and it's a weird and thing it's to horrible do. And... Yeah, so there was probably a little of both, but I wasn't. I don't. I don't remember being mad at this person. I think I was being a little bit sarcastic, but I was also sort of like, "Wow, that is the world I live in. I just act every day like it's not." But the truth is, I live in this like any minute now. We are we are heading off a cliff. We're just sort of still catching a little air. It ended ended up that he was alive for still. 
four more years after that. Wow. And that was six more years after that. He died when I was 22. So 11 years with the illness? Yeah. So that reaction was sort of your talking about dying in this sort of very on-the-street casual way. Before he passed, in your family or with friends, had you ever experienced the talking about death? I mean, the actual death moment and the experience of what that means? Or was there always kind of code words for loss and gone? And mm. we do so much dancing in our world around yeah. not saying that word as if somehow that word is gonna. It wasn't like that in my family, but, but I do remember having conversations with friends who seemed very naive. And much before, much before I was faced with the, the, the diagnosis of my father, right? Okay. Before that, I remember... So you remember even before the illness? Mm-hmm. I remember going to a funeral um, of somebody in our family. I can't remember now who it was. Yeah. It was someone removed enough from me that I'm not remembering. But I, re- I don't think my parents ever tried to pretend it was anything other. There wasn't a lot of going to the other side kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, my parents were both raised religiously, but in different religions. So my father was raised Jewish, my mother was raised Catholic and was a Catholic nun. And they were very loose and soft and open about, we don't really know what happens after we die. Mm-hmm. People have all kinds of different opinions. We have had different opinions throughout our, our short lifetime, so we're going to let you guys decide about that. So they didn't ever imprint us with decided um, impressions. Like, yeah. this is what we as our family think. So... But when my dad was diagnosed, he he took my sister and I and well, we were all together in, in their bedroom. We knew he was sick, but he came back from seeing the doctor in New York and he said uh, that I'm really sick. I have I have a disease that's terminal and we didn't know what that meant. We didn't know that word. Yeah. Interesting. So my sister was nine or ten and I was eleven, I think. Yeah. And um yeah. And so he explained what terminal meant, that I, it means that this illness is going to cause me to die. And they don't know how it could be a year, could be longer. That was the first time I understood that death can happen to my parents. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it was interesting. I saw, I mean, he, we cried. We said, we're, we're scared. And he said, I'm scared too. And he cried. Yeah. So... In some ways, I feel very lucky because my dad and my mom were so open about their emotional reactions to everything that was going on. They didn't amplify anything, but they didn't hide that there was fear and anguish and struggle. Did you feel... So it sounds like it wasn't a taboo topic. Mm -mm. So did you feel any hesitancy to talk about it more or less? Would you hurt your dad's feelings or make your mom worry? Was there any kind of... Not with my dad so much. I felt like I didn't I, I didn't want to drive the conversation about his death to make him super aware of it, but I never felt like he was afraid of talking about it. So it was, an, it was not a concern of mine, and um, I don't think it was of my sister's either. And I, with my mom, we were a little bit more careful because she was just emotionally wrought and exhausted by an extensive, a very high level of caretaking because his disease was so enormous you know yeah. really like t- so the challenge of keeping him alive became and giving him a high quality of life became the bigger conversation it overtook the death piece but there was like his father had died and we we didn't go to that funeral but there was that and then his sister while he had ALS his sister had Alzheimer's young so they both had very very horrible diseases young and she died while he was sick so there mm-hmm. was yeah, there was just... It was around. It was around. It was around. Yeah. It was around. It didn't feel like... I When I would listen to stories of people who had, you know, their families had been through wars or been in the Holocaust, or I mean, those, to me, were like tragedies that were really about death and loss. Our experience had a death component, yeah. but it was really about illness and survival and... And living with and some living. quality of life yeah. or seeking some living that is a quality of life. Yeah. So if anything, that that whole pending death piece caused us to... Because we weren't hiding from it, because we knew it was part of it, mm-hmm. I think it caused us to just really not shy away from expressing feelings of love, of need, of, you know. And, and so 
I think we're lucky. I had a little friend um, whose father died suddenly of a heart attack, a young, healthy man on a plane. She and I were in junior high school, so I must have been 13, right? 14, something like that. And she cried so with me about her father, and, and she said something so fascinating and startling to me. It was a really mature conversation for two teenage girls. She said, I don't know what's worse, not having a chance to say goodbye to my father or watching my father die slowly like you have to. Wow. Yeah. At 13. Yeah, at 13. And I said the same thing back to her. I said, I don't know either. I'm so grateful to have all this time yeah. with my dad, but I have to, I do have to watch him yeah. decline. You know, Rami, you said yeah. something that was interesting to me earlier about having those conversations and maybe not talking about it so much with your mom because she was working on attending to mm -hmm. the caretaking of your dad and and was going through her own experience of fear and loss and all or you know potential loss mm -hmm. so I often think about the challenges that those of us who've lost someone face after death because people don't know what to say to you because they're trying to attend to their own grief and you're yeah don't want them to talk to you because you don't have that I would for me, that's been my experience. It's like, I don't want to make it okay for you. You don't need to make it okay for for me. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't thought about that, that you had to do that dance pre-death. So you had to be present with your own experiences, sadness, fear, all those things, and be negotiating with a mom. Also, by the way, you were a teenager with a mom. So tell me a little bit about what was that negotiation like for you? What feelings did it bring up for you? How was it different maybe for you and your sister? That, yeah, boy, there's, that's... There's, it's a lot to unpack. There. Yeah, no, it's okay, <laughs> but that's what we're doing. That's okay. And what was interesting for me and my sister is we had, we had a real ally relationship growing up around the, the whole thing, my mom, my dad, the whole family. And, and, as, a, and, and as a rule, our, for my mom... My sister and I understood that she had, she was applying her Catholic faith yeah. to, and also her training as a nun, other story, to, <laughs> um, to the concept that there may, there may, a cure may come in time. Okay. And I think we understood that there was a fragility, that her common sense probably registered most of the time that that wasn't likely. But there was a part of her that just felt like if she didn't hold on to hope that maybe she was causing the yes. lack of possibility. Yeah. So I think my sister and I both agreed to kind of suspend possibility one way or the other. I think we, we both, we talked about this years later, that we both feared t putting a pinky on the scale of what might happen by wanting too much yeah. or not wanting up. enough. Yeah, yeah, not wanting enough. So we sort of, in our own two ways, which were different and p private at the time, uh, released inserting our personal desires into the situation. Interesting. But we did also tend very intentionally to the well-being of the family. We never had moments where we were like, this is awful and I just wish it would just all be over so I could just have a normal life. Like there was never anything like that. Really, over mm -hmm. the course of 11 years, while yeah. you and your sister were going through no. puberty and teenage yeah. life and no but we did something really interesting instead I think we had a certain kind of maturity and and sweetness that my parents had had showed us how nurtured they, yeah, yeah had nurtured um, and we we rallied as a team and as a family and my parents tried very hard to also insist on normality wherever they could for us like go be kids yeah um, and we did but I think we also turned all of that stuff inward and had weird implosive sort of self-destructive things that came about. For my sister, that was depressive, very hard on herself. And I had that too. Um, I think for me, it was I would escape into a certain level of like fantasy about what I was going to do with my life next. You know, when I was yeah. done being super good and making sure that like I brought everything I had to this to make it as good as... It could be for my dad, for my mom, for my sister, and just, like, everything that I could do, then I'm going to, like, escape and be a star. It's going to be Rami time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I've still never given that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just never realized how um, that machinery was being built and quite well, so it was very, very strong. And I think everybody has a story like that because caretaking 
or like heading towards grief or loss, yeah. most people don't get completely blindsided by loss. It does happen. Yeah. Heart attacks. Yeah. Accidents. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But most of us have some tiny little or very long extended flag system going where we know it's coming. We just don't know what it's going to look like. And that's interesting. So you talked a little bit about that for, for you and for many people who have some time between, you know, a diagnosis or something and that death, you start to make calculations about how you moderate your own plans and your own desires and your own sort of trajectory. Um, I think for many people, it's an opportunity to find perspective and gratitude for you know I can for for many of us it's like okay well that thing that was really driving me crazy the other day really isn't important anymore so there's some beauty I think in the perspective that that notice gives you but I also imagine it takes a sort of continued commitment to be putting yourself or maybe your plans or your trajectory to the side yes I mean it well, yeah. and you know this, you know this. I mean, and that's yeah. the funny thing is that it definitely does. But when you're young and you're forming, or even when you're just doing it out of like, this is your natural sort of, um, your true way of worth. being, yeah. your authentic self. Yeah. Or your system. Of, I mean, I tend to think of those as more like your system of survival to be someone who just like with, can put your own needs aside chronically Yes, <laughs> with that. Like, oh, no problem. Let me yeah. just put my own trajectory on hold for a few more years while I take care of you. I think, uh, when, but when you're young growing up with this kind of thing, that you do that, um, it becomes your coping mechanism. So then it becomes its own problem later, right? Because I grew up and learned to do that for this situation and imagined that when it was over, I would go on to be someone who was like on my own thing. Yeah. Doing yeah. my own thing, taking care of my What I never um, planned for was that when I got to the other side of it and I got to the other side of the grief, which circling back around quickly and we'll come back yeah. to this the grief is not something you can do beforehand is what I learned no matter how much you know it's coming and my sister and I I think suspended trying to grieve beforehand because we yeah. just knew it didn't make sense no. yeah. all you're really doing is grieving for what you're losing right now yeah, yeah. Um, but what I didn't account for in my whole journey to my father's end and getting to the other side of the grief was that I would still have this machinery that I built specifically for that situation yeah and I had no ability to do things that I had in my mind to do. Like, yeah. because literally I didn't have a, a functional system in my life that was good for anything but taking care of whoever was in front of me. And even if they didn't need me to, I would just find ways to accelerate whatever was going on for them. And then I would still do the thing that I'd always done, which is make a lot of plans about how I'm going to do something, spend a lot of time not doing it, and then at some point kind of beat myself up for not getting things done. Because I just didn't... It was no, literally it was like, years. yeah, like most kids would, you know, when they, no one's ever shown them a checkbook and suddenly they're out of college, they get their first checkbook and they're like, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. It was a little like that. I was like, I'm going to make a film. I'm going to make a film. I'm going to make a film. And then suddenly realized like five years later, I don't know how to make a film and I'm not doing anything to get taking the steps. I'm not taking the steps because I keep getting distracted by this thing that mm -hmm. was very useful in that situation. So I think what you experienced is such a common experience for people, grief or not aside, but that you become patterned in relationships in certain roles and you develop that over time. And as you said, that really served you, I would imagine. You would still look back and have no regrets that that really served you and your yeah. sister and your mom and your dad during that journey. And I don't think any of us, certainly in our younger years, but even now in our 40s and 50s, could fully understand the way getting on that one train track, if you want to use that metaphor, yeah. means that you're. it's going to take just moving heaven and earth in major gears to be able to switch tracks and, and try something new, and then it's an unfamiliar thing. And also you were doing that in a time that really was an identity-forming time in your life. So Absolutely. you became, you probably received praise and positive feedback for being the strong. person and who is strong <laughs> yeah. right I'm nodding my head with you right now like if one more person says you're so strong I'm yeah. just gonna like I don't want to be strong anymore right right like stop you think that's a compliment but and it, and it is a funny thing because when you're a young person growing up in it you do sort of go oh I'm strong and they seem and to I'm, 
They seem to admire me, so I'm doing good. And good is really the thing you want to be, you know? That's it. You just want to be good. And um, not stir. You you see your parents in pain and suffering and struggling, and you just want to be good so that they don't have another thing to suffer and struggle about. Or you choose the path of, I hate all of this and I just act out, which is fine too. I mean, honestly, many years of my life I look back and thought, I don't know if I, I mean, I don't know if I'd go back and choose the same version of it. It probably would have just been fine either way. Yeah. They probably would have resisted and my mom, my mom and I probably would have had a lot more battles. My dad probably would have been like, yeah, right on. Act them <laughs> out. You know, yeah. I honestly think. Yeah. But they gave And me, then you may be telling yourself the story, I wish I wouldn't have spent that time I mean, acting out. Totally. I wish I would have spent that time caretaking. Yeah. Then I would be like many of the people that I went on to date who were the kids who, who likely would have been the ones to act out, leave home go on their own thing, make their stuff happen, but then, you know, struggle later in their life to, to take do the other side, compassion, nurturing with partner, you know, friends. Yes. You know, so, yeah, I think I'm at an age now where I think there's no right way to do it. There's just the way that you do it. And right. then maybe... And how do you look at what you're doing and notice it and yeah. name it and then decide what effort yeah. you're going to make to make adjustments to change that track? And the funny thing is you can't do it alone anyway, even with a great therapist. Like, really, it all comes out in relationships later and your own ideas about what you want in your life and then how you see yourself accomplishing or not accomplishing them has everything to do with, you know... The connectivity between you and another person. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We need each other to... We we are mirrors to each other. And and these things, uh, loss being a number one thing, Um, but also, you know relationships and abuse and neglect these things are how we run it we get run into a mirror where we have yes. to face ourselves one way or the other yeah. but we we are only able to experience ourselves i think and see ourselves in in relationship and i don't mean relationship boyfriend and girlfriend i mean just in relation with others Absolutely. that's where we see our essence our experience the stories we tell about ourselves how we experience our emotions that only comes out in those things. And so. loss is a perfect example of that. Because when you're speaking about the loss of someone that you love yeah. or depend on for any reason or yeah. both. Yeah. That, that, that is the edge. That's literally the, the biggest edge of life is yeah. one person leaves it and you're still here. And that is when you realize what connection is. And now that this person, if we are who we are in relation to other people, when someone so formative is gone and dies, then we're... Grappling, grappling with the question of, well, who am I now that I'm not, in your case, daughter to Rob? Yeah. So that maybe segues, if we can, to talk a little bit about another thing I've been thinking a lot about as in my own experiences of grief and loss and in conversations with other people, and that is how you were a child without a father. Which, by the way, for those of us who've lost a spouse, we have a name for that. I get to walk on this earth calling myself a widow. Not something I ever thought I would do at age 40, but I check the box everywhere I go. But it has a name and it has a shorthand that sometimes triggers people, but also kind of closes down conversations too. You know, mm. I can just, it's a neat little identity package. Who's so I'm, interesting? I'm a widow, and I've been thinking lately um, about your situation and a young woman I've been talking with recently who lost her two-year-old son. There's no word. And there's no word for a mom who has lost her son, and there's no word for a daughter who's lost her father. Isn't that kind of extraordinary? Right. That we don't have that terminology, but we have it around the institutional marriage. We have that around marriage, and we just have names and titles and labels on everything you can imagine under the sun. And I know... So for, for those of us who've had to do that, we have forms we fill out, we see the label, we check the box, we, we it's not good or bad, it's just an experience mm-hmm. that's happening in time. So for you, when you were walking in the world days and weeks, maybe back to school, I don't know how quickly you went back to school, how were you, in your, either in your mind or talking to others, how were you, were you thinking about your identity or this shift in who you were now. Oh, I don't think I was. But you know, so okay, so something just occurred to me that I think is kind of funny. First of all, the term widow and the and the um, the counterpart widower, yeah. there, there is something 
that brings it right to your heart and makes you tender and want to take care of someone as soon as you hear those words. Except widower always a little bit sounded to me like the, the maker of widows yeah. is the widower. <laughs> yes. So I've always had a choice. little bit of a hard time with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think, which makes me like, want to yawn in church, giggle a little at the worst times. Because yeah. I'm like, okay, I don't know how to deal with that. But anyway, um, I think though widow and widow, or well, especially widow, was designed to more... It was more about protocol with women. Interesting. It was more about the label of miss yeah. and missus, which were the two primary categories of a woman's life for a very long time, right? Like yes. everything matters between miss and missus. Right. Once you're a missus, you're off, you're unavailable. Yeah. And so there needed to be a very significant and being a divorcee, what had right. a connotation that even so when you say a go back to being a miss, you can't go back to being a miss because you're not a, a virgin. So I just think there's this whole societal sort of protocol piece to it that has less to do with about acknowledgement of loss than it has to do with propriety. And which, which is why I think it's not in the language of everyone else because everyone else loses somebody. Everyone yeah. loses somebody. Yeah. yeah. So, so in that, so I think on, from that level, I never had any like qualm about not having a word for it. Yeah. Um, also, maybe in this case, because the, the, the long slope towards it gave me a lot of time to understand what, that, that this was going to be something I was going to be living with my adult life. I never thought I would have them as long as I did. Right. So, and I'm having the same experience with my mother who's dying very slowly of Alzheimer's now. So I've had these long slopes, and even my dog of 17 years, like this precious baby, my like my baby, yeah. who I was, you know, leaned on for everything, a very long, slow, nurtured yeah. passing that I, that I got to be there for, and I got to be there with my father, and I haven't had any other kind of loss experience than those. So for me, the identity piece is less abrupt or, or concerning. Because yeah. I guess maybe I have this long time to kind of adjust to it, that that's going to be the case. You started to become, started to know yourself or could vision yourself in this new, yeah, I this don't know new version I, of life or something. Yeah, I don't know if I envisioned it exactly, yeah. but I understood it, like on a yeah. gut level that I didn't need to explore. And I did. Whereas I think if it had happened like in a blink of an eye, I yeah. would have been in shock, and that shock would have had that component of, well, who am I then? Who, but I'll tell you where it has shown up in a different, a completely okay. different way. I'm just finding this now because I've just gone through a breakup, and as you know, as my yeah. friend, I've gone through a pretty, pretty hard breakup that I'm struggling with, and then you know I've had a lot of them. Yeah. Which says a lot in itself, right? Wow. Like most of my relationships have been, you know, intense, but like four or six years, not a lifetime or a marriage. And so one of the things that has shown up, and I never in the grief of relationships ending in a series of them over time something that I did not see coming that I think is very much out of this uh, beginning piece is the story everyone leaves me you know mm. so the losses become similar yeah because they start to feel like little deaths and I see them as deaths yes I see them as a death of a certain kind of relationship and so in its own way that identity piece has shown up for me, but not directly linked to my father dying. Not that I am an orphan or, a, you know, yeah, a child without a father. No. So, so it's, a, it's a built narrative over time or has informed. Yes. Like, I never had that because my father's dying and death made sense to me. I understood it on a natural instinct. There were lots of moments when I thought, God, I wish my dad was still here. Yes. I really, like, I'd have moments of conflict or crisis and I just knew he was the person I wanted and that never has changed. I had that thought a couple days ago. Yeah. But where the identity piece came and slapped me in the face was with me hearing a voice in my head or hearing myself on the phone to a friend when I was in grief about a relationship ending yeah. was me being like, everyone leaves. You know, Every, everyone eventually leaves. Yeah. Me. And then I heard it. I was like, oh, oh, you think this is special to you. Everyone leaves you. Right. So that's where the identity piece, it snuck in up in the back door. Snuck in. <laughs> yeah. You're not welcome here, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that built, that identity shaped, or that shaped your identity. Well, yeah. I think it comes around to grief, right? Yeah. Grief yeah. and our instinct to, how we show up for um, death, dying, mm -hmm. illness, caretaking, all that stuff, has a lot to do with, it, that, it has a lot to do with what we're doing with our grief. Yeah. So what I was doing was being a very good girl. 
and not really being so, I wasn't willing to have my grief full out because I didn't, back to that conversation we had before about not taking up too much space with your mom, not to cause. Yeah. My mom had most of the grief stage. Yeah. Yeah. Grief about him dying, grief about him being sick, grief about the difficulty of caring for him. Um, There wasn't enough oxygen in the room. Yeah. A little bit. She tried. Yeah. She she tried. She wanted and and uh, and as an adult taking care of an aging, dying parent, the reality is, even though I have incredible friends who do entire podcasts to give me a space <laughs> to talk about my, my grief, and I have wonderful conversations, you have to go about life not being in grief all the time. And also, yeah. it's a very long, slow thing again. So, yeah. that I can't just be in grief, or and I don't even know how to well, be in grief all the time. And the and the of course the fallacy and misconception that you can like do grief and be done and that you could have done that before you started your first dating relationship and then you would have somehow yeah. put that story to bed and be able to create something new. Yeah. We're we're in grief. It's all woven together in our over our, yeah. our over our lifetime. Yeah, and yeah. we've talked about it in your situation that you, it comes back up. It comes up when it comes. You can have an entire other relation. You can fall in love again. Yeah, and then that grief is there. You know, yeah. I I can. You know, I try to have a little ritual about uh, in a relationship with my father over the years of, on the day that he died. I have a you know a little ritual every day that that I do, and I write him a letter. And these things have comforted me, but they don't have anything to do with grief. The, the grief isn't controlled and put into those days. Yeah. Sometimes I have no grief on those days. Sometimes I forget those days. Yes. Yeah. And I have a little guilt, but it's not even grief. The grief suddenly comes up uh, when I just realize I miss him, or when I have this sudden self-pitying thought of. God, what would my life have been like if he'd been along for the ride much more? Yeah. Um, because, of course, in that fantasy, it would have been great. Right. Who knows? But who knows? I mean, he had a really stellar start. So maybe yeah. in my case, it would have been absolutely <laughs> wonderful to have him along for the ride the whole time. But we don't really ever know. Yeah. One of the many things we don't talk about in our culture is what it's like to be by someone's bedside when they die. I'm really grateful to Rami for sharing the very beautiful and heartbreaking story of what it was like to be there when her father died. If you're ready to talk a little bit about the experience of being with your dad when he passed. And the reason I ask is not out of some voyeuristic no curiosity and actually you and I have been at somebody's bedside a different together, person's bedside yeah. together when someone passed which maybe we can talk about but the reason I want to know for you is I want to sort of give an opportunity to bear witness to that experience because where we started in this conversation was really in my mind the real tr- mm. I'm trying to think of the word the real sort of missed opportunity and tragedy it is that those of us who are at bedside or with someone when they passed have to live with the that story to themselves because so many other people are so uncomfortable hearing the details of what that experience is like and I think that just perpetuates our discomfort in general about death and maybe even the beauty and the absurdity and maybe we would all be more prepared if that was a conversation that we were able to have in life. So that's just as a frame of reference. That's what makes me ask if you might be willing to talk about that experience. Yeah, definitely. But I'm just so excited that you're creating this opportunity. I I just have to say that right now and how you just put that because this is what needs to happen. And I feel so fortunate to be the first interview because... I had a very fortunate experience in this mm. that I think a lot of people don't get. And I hope somehow maybe this becomes a way that can... You know, I think we're getting to a more interesting place in, in, in the world because our communication is so expanded now. Yes. Again, the fact that we had this long time to prepare. And in our particular situation, which was highly unusual, but probably becoming more and more common as as people engage with the technology that keeps us alive. Yes. And we had to actually sort of make a decision about when yeah. f- with my father because it wasn't happening naturally and he was ready. So I don't want to get into the like lo- logistics of that only because it's it takes us off course a little bit. Okay. I don't mind talking yeah. about it yeah. and we can come back around if you want to. But 
but the moment of being with him. Uh, I, I tell you that first because we had time to understand that we are getting to that moment and plan a little bit. And so we really made it a celebration mm-hmm. and made it um, in a very intentional experience, which I, I think we weren't swept away by the fear. I mean, we were afraid, yeah. but we also had time to prepare um, ourselves that that we were that this was happening and that we were facing it now, mm-hmm. and so we invited friends over to come say goodbye, and um, we played music constantly. Brought music into the room. Oh my gosh, I want to play you this song. My sister was incredible at that. She always brought the most poignant poetry song bits from movies. Anything does not surprise me yeah. at all. Knowing your no, sister, no, exactly. She, I mean, and she she kept this beautiful journal and wrote things down and with pictures and. Um, we watched our favorite family movie, which was The Big Chill, which was about a suicide. <laughs> you know, and still hey, laughed. And you know, uh, lots of hugs and promise. Great soundtrack. Great so. soundtrack. Um, we had this incredible experience, and then there was the moment of this is, this is the when that we had all decided, and we checked in with my father about it. He had very limited ability to communicate, like yes. very limited. Yeah, yeah. He could only look from one side of the room to the other. He had no other control of his no body. No skills. And, yeah. yeah, and we were not even sure that he was able to move his eyes entirely from one side to the other. So it was getting harder and harder to test our own answers. So we had to go on faith that the, that the months that we'd spent creating a consistent series of questions to him and the consistent answers we'd gotten were leading us to this moment. Yes. Yeah. So so it's unlike a lot of people's experience, but they're all unlike any other. I, yeah. Because they're your own special relationship with this person. On a person. spectrum of yeah. experiences. But I feel lucky. I felt lucky then that we had that much space to create our own experience with losing him and helping him pass at the same time. It didn't feel like we were victims of something. Yeah. Or that something was being stolen from us. It felt like... It was intentional. It was intentional, which I think there are cultures where this is normal, and I think that that is an incredible thing to have because what it gave us, even though it was hard, unthinkably hard to to do and be with, we had time and space, and we had a family therapist we spoke to, and we had a family nurse who was part of our daily life in the house. We had a little team of support inside our home, and we weren't alone, and we had each other, and we got to experience really a miracle, which wasn't a word we used a lot in our house. It wasn't one we Even judged. with the Catholic nun as Even a with mom. The, yeah. <laughs> there are so many stories on this weird little okay. family. But, but it, was, it, was mirac- it was miraculous because my dad, um, we had to turn off the life support. Yeah. They'd given him something to help him not have any pain. Yeah. Um, and he was able to, and we were holding his hands and holding on to him and we were, he was able to look at each one of the three of us, my sister, my mother, and I, and mm. hold eye contact and make sure that we knew him. Oh. Yeah, it was really... It was amazing. It was and a gift. gift. It was a gift. It was, it was a champion moment. I have yeah. no idea what strength that must have taken, you know? Yeah. But he, it he was, was present right... Absolutely. Right up until the end. Yeah. And probably a gift for and knowing that it was a gift to you. Yeah. It was the yeah. only thing he could give give you. Yeah. And I I think we all interpreted it differently. I think my my sister and my mom, three years after still worried about having done things the right way or understanding mm-hmm. uh, him. I never did. I just didn't. I don't know why. I think I just trusted the current between he and I that, that, and, and the process and I felt like he um, well there's a, there's a there's another story tucked in here which may open up all sorts of different kinds of doors but I think these are all part of loss right because this is all about what we do and don't understand about what's after death I don't think my dad when I was growing up believed there was anything after death in fact I know he didn't because I remember journals that we read um, but he was interested in the spiritual conversation. He became an avid student of Catholicism and Christianity just because he was curious. Suddenly, like just a torrent of screams. And I don't know how else to explain it. It was 
nothing I'd ever experienced before, nothing I was prone to creating. Right, right, right. I didn't have an inclination for that kind of drama. And so clear to me, to me at that time, there was no argument. I was hearing something he was ex- He was communicating. Yeah. yeah, but it, they weren't his screams. So that was the piece that I troubled with. At first I thought, oh my God, he's in, he's in pain and I'm having some sort of ESP. Tele- or tele- yeah. Yeah. Um, and I dropped his hand for a second and I hugged him and I cried and then I held his hand again and listened for a minute longer and, and then I couldn't bear it. And I talked about it with this therapist that I had. And he, uh, you know, he did the normal thing of like, well, you pro- that's pro- that was probably a release of a bunch of your fears. And I thought, yeah, maybe. But at the same time, inside, I was like, no, that really wasn't didn't what it was. True. No, it didn't ring true. So I just let it stay. And I had a couple of feelings about it. One of them, the most, the one that <laughs> reigned the truest for me was that my dad was exploring all of the journeys of afterlife. Like, just he was at the edge of many, many journeys. Almost like there was a portal open yeah. to that space where death is not final yet. You know? yeah. And there are philosophies like in different religions about that, <coughs> that, about, that a soul or a spirit or a being or a yeah. consciousness will sort of linger for a while. We call them ghosts yeah. because they're not, not, they don't even realize that the body's gone, right? So yeah. who knows? I don't know. I didn't make assessments. But one thing that I did look for at the end, I sat in a room with him before the end, and I held his hand, and I listened for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I not only didn't hear that, but I heard something different. I heard like something that I had had a dream of when we were, uh, when I was young, about being with my dad on a hill and holding his hand mm-hmm. and hearing celestial voices. And it was the most real thing that I'd ever experienced in a dream or in life. <laughs> And I never forgot it, and I've never been able to experience those sounds. And they came from everywhere, like all around yeah. us, out of the tree, out of the, everything, and in this dream. And so in that moment when I held his hand, I could just hear like the tiniest echo of that. And I just had this innate feeling that he is going... He's opened that. Yeah. He's stepping into that yeah. space. Yeah. And I, didn't, I don't know, I don't think of it as heaven. I don't no. know. I don't have a belief system around it. But I did... But it brought you comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, and, I, and it, what, what was more interesting is that it brought me this idea that he was navigating through the next part already in this gotcha. body. He, he was already on that journey. He was already on that journey. He was like, I'm trapped in this body. I'm alive and breathing. I'm here with you. But I'm not here in this life anymore. I'm, I'm departing. I'm finding my way. I'm looking at what's happening. I've opened all these doors in here. So I never processed any of that, but it left space and then 25 years later, I started looking again at these conversations and exploring. And I don't have any answers or any decisions made about anything. Yeah. But, but so for me, being in the room with him, experiencing death in front of my face in the particular way that I did, was the most profoundly beautiful moment of my life. And not to say that it wasn't extremely painful. Well, I think but it was, it was it, that brings up my favorite word, as you know, the word and. Yeah. It was profoundly the most beautiful thing and one of the most painful things you've ever had. I think yeah. we often make ourselves make those choices. It can only be one or the other. And I think that moment of, of being there in that moment of death, I was going to say passing, but I don't want to say passing. I want to say death. And that moment of death is an and moment, if ever there was one. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about loss? Yeah. And, it, and it's different every time. Yeah. I asked Rami to talk a little bit more about what it was like being by her father's bedside when he died. Now, I didn't do this to be a voyeur or to elicit some kind of emotional response. I did this because I actually think there's a combination of extreme sorrow and extreme joy being present to someone's last breath. And this is the type of conversation we need to be having so that we all might be better prepared if and when we find ourselves in a moment like this. I'm wondering, for me, I was noticing every freckle and every scent and every touch, but I was also watching myself notice that thing. 
Can you tell me a little bit? Did you have that experience of being present and not, and to the physical, the yeah, all the sensation? Maybe not quite as acutely as you're describing, but I think so. I do think so. I I remember it so uh, clearly, and I remember myself, my own feelings and everything, as yeah. you, as you do. Um, so in that sense, I do get what you're saying. Like it's almost like we know that we have a part of ourselves that bears witness all the time. Yeah. And we go through a lot of our life not noticing if we're bearing witness sort or of not. Blase. Sometimes we're just really subconscious and in those moments it's 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 like an echo of witnessing because when you're with someone who's dying, yeah. And you're with them until they die and they are gone. You you are witnessing them and it's so important. It feels so important to just gulp up every last moment of their presence on on this planet as a living being. Yes. And I think there's like this echo effect, right? Like But then you're bearing witness your, to yourself your bearing witness. witness bears witness to you. And who knows what is behind that witness. Yeah. Bearing witness, bearing witness. Um and I think that that only happens if you yeah. I'm curious we've talked a little bit today, you know, bearing witness is probably at the core of what how I think about how we navigate this earth and and how much practice, as you said, and how much attention it takes to to be bearing witness to someone's story because we're busy living our lives. Had you did you think about in that moment as you were walking into it, as you gathered by his bedside, did you give any thought to I need to be present? Did it, did it take a sort of conscious attention? Yeah, I think so. I think I knew, I mean, I maybe didn't have the terminology the same way that I would use it now, but I knew that I wanted to show up 100% and not interfere with fear of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess in that sense, I knew I wanted to be present. Yeah. But it was also built into how we dealt with everything that was critical, all the critical moments. It was built into yeah. how I was raised. This yes, circles back to something you brought up earlier that I wanted to respond to, but it was in a cluster of questions and I took it in a row. How you deal with other people dealing with what you're dealing with, right? It's a real house of mirrors. I was going to come back to that. <laughs> okay, so okay. Thank you for bringing us back to that moment. So we're on the same page. So because it is, it's again, we have a culture that uh, doesn't, and we have, we have a world that doesn't deal with death very well. No. Most cultures that had beautiful death practices have been abolished or destroyed yeah. in some way. Um, or we're just very out of touch with the ones that yes. are still. So um, so in America, in the Midwest, yeah. where <laughs> we grew Michigan. up, us good Michigan girls. Yeah, and we grew up in a very liberal, open-minded place in the middle of a place that was less liberal, less open-minded. Yes. But we grew up in this really cool place. But it was still full of people who didn't know how to deal with it. So, you know, there was the illness conversation and the death conversation. And I know we're focusing mostly on death here, but the truth is grief is present in both. And it's so the primary focus is like, how does one navigate grief? A lot of grief happened before my dad died, but the grief was about him being ill and about how to navigate through life with someone in that kind of condition, right? Yeah. Um, but we did come into, and it brings me back to the very beginning, you know, some guy that I barely know saying, how's your dad? Yeah. He knows that my dad's dying of this like horrendous disease. And then me giving him exactly what he gave me and shocking him. Right. You're going to give me a flip question? I'm yeah. going to give you a clear answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but that's what's going on. You asked, I'm answered. What are you going to do with that I'm information? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, but there were also the more subtle forms of it that were really interesting um, that, we, that, I, that I witnessed more than engaged with. Rami shared with us something that many of you have experienced before and I'm sure I've spoken about on this program and that is how sometimes people can't stay around to watch someone as they're dying or to even be there for the griever after they're gone. My father's best friend was this very stoic German man, good man, loved my dad. They, they were unlikely as besties. You know, which always makes for the most interesting duos makes for of history. history. You yeah. know, this sort of small, beautiful Jewish man, very fit, very, very intellectual, very funny, and this giant Aryan 
handsome ladies man very like uber man you know Interesting. <laughs> like, yeah and they would sit together and they just made perfect sense but if you saw them in the same bar you would never think of them as buddies yeah um and oh, i love that image yeah they were great and the way that they were the most this is my favorite story about the two of them the way that you realized that they were meant to be was when someone told a joke and they had very different senses of humor but they totally got each other when someone told a joke they're both very dry so nothing would happen, and as a kid, you needed a minute to get the joke because it was so dry. Okay. But how I would be sure that it was, like, a really good crack-up is the room would go silent, and if you looked at each of them, they were just this giant grin of millions of teeth, oh. but they made no noise when they laughed. It was just this ridiculous <laughs> silence, these goofy grins. Like grinning faces from yeah, air to air. until one of them needed air, and then you'd hear... <laughs> 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 it was so... Anyway, so this man bought the yes. house next door to my father when he was diagnosed with this illness. Next door to our house. Because of your dad's illness? Because of my dad's illness. Wow. So he could be... Well, let's talk... There's a friendship of the ages. Okay. Yes. And... Interesting. Nothing is ever one no. thing. It's not like the stories no. in the books. He did that. He was incredible. He was a support. And the disease went on for a very long time. Yeah. And then he came to my dad one day after my dad had lost the ability to really communicate and wow. said, I, Rob, I can't stand by anymore. I can't. I, I don't think you made the right choice. I don't know that you should still be alive this long. I think it's really hard on your family. And there were other friends. There were friends that moved close and, were, and became our close community because my dad got sick and they loved my mom or loved my dad or both or wanted to support us. And there were friends that had been our dear friends that moved away very quickly because they said things like, we just want to remember Rob how he was. You know, this is about a person who's alive. Right. So it's a very strange right. way. There's a luxury for somebody to be yeah. able to say, I'm going to pick and choose. Yeah. I, I mean, that I'm going to pick and choose this relationship <laughs> and then I'm going to, even though he will still go on, I'm going to just wrap myself in bubble wrap and, yes. and pretend that this... Yeah. Isn't continuing even though I'm not witnessing. And that's exactly yeah. what they did. That's perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what they did. They were like, bubble wrap, I'm going to go to church every Sunday and pray for your dad. And all yeah. that. You know? <laughs> Say my prayers, thoughts and prayers, yeah, thoughts and prayers. thoughts and prayers. And they did. And, yeah. and honestly, even as a child at that age, I remember thinking, well, that sucks. But also, I felt more sorry for them. I really did because really? I knew that they would come to a moment in their life where they felt some grief or, was, or sort of guilt, guilt about that. Yeah. And um, also that, uh, well, I suddenly had an understanding of what people meant when they said, you're so strong. I was like, oh, like this. Because what they were saying to you is, I'm not strong enough to, I to bear this. witness and to stay. Bearing witness. That's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly it. They definitely were saying, I could not bear witness to this and still keep myself together. Yeah. And, um, represent as if I'm keeping myself together. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I started a project to tell the story of my family going through this long, slow death, and I interviewed a lot of the people that were around me at that time, and I remember when I was listening back to all those interviews, one of my questions was, did you see any signs in me that I was hitting maximum load, or that I was, what were the changes that you witnessed in me and my sister? And they, no, nobody, they all came back with, no, you guys were just incredible the whole time, you were just so strong because and, that was the story they were yeah. telling from afar that yeah. made it okay for them yeah. to maybe not bear witness be strong show up because it's okay Rob's kids yeah they got it together they're strong yeah I think there yeah. was some of that and I also think that they were just really trying to hold on to like giving I mean I remember a lot of the, the adults around me saying you know if you need a place to freak out, break down, fall apart, or you may want Girl to act dishes. out, like you can do that. Yeah. I remember my most like um, one of my aunts who I didn't know very well, it was a very blatant, blunt person, was just like, "You need to cry." You need like she tried to make me cry on command to like get it out. Right. So I remember just thinking, "You're a jerk right now," and I loved her, but she was driving me crazy in that moment. But I think it was also more that just people, even the people that were close, were having a hard time looking. Yeah. You know, that's all. We all were. I don't know. I don't fault them. I, I did too. I lived right in the middle of it. And sometimes I couldn't look at what I was looking at. My sister was away at school and she wasn't home as often. She was the one who came home and looked into the situation of our house and said, I 
think, Dad, where are you at with this? You know, he couldn't even speak, but she was the one who called it because she was really looking at it in that moment. And my mom and I were there every day. We were becoming sort, sort of, of contextually blind or, yeah. Yeah, to the situation. And, and those are all signs of grief. And, the, and the, the symptoms that I was looking for when I was asking people that were like, I gained like 40 pounds and my sister, you know, had definitely had depression that was obvious. And there were some signs that we, right. were, we were really struggling, but we were also... Showing coping, coping quote unquote, yeah. or this is something that I did learn around that situation, but not the rest of my life. But when people would come into my house after being my friend for a long time and meet my dad and my see my situation in my house, they'd say, "I don't understand how you could let me go on and on and on about my stupid problems with like my mom and my curfew or my dad and his weird drama about the my boy homework. that didn't call me back, the boy and... that didn't call me back," and I. I don't know why I had this wisdom then. I lost it around the middle, you know, for a long <laughs> hey, time. you know, we can't hang on to all things. Okay. Right. But I think at the time, I remember feeling very clear, like, well, that's the hardest thing that you're going through. Right. So I understand my hardest thing. You understand your hardest thing. So we understand what it's like to be pushed to our absolute limit. Whatever that my limit is. Yeah. Like if I was an Olympic athlete and you were just learning how to, let's say, pole vault, you know, I would still have respect and sympathy for you hitting what you could absolutely maximum load to do today. Yeah. And that I could like jump a building versus what you could do, but that doesn't matter because the pain we both feel is the same. When you're talking about, so interesting, you're talking about that shared human experience that we all have is when we are pushed to our own max, when we are, our stresses are our true stresses. I went back to be a practicing therapist about three to four weeks after, after Eric passed and I had patients say to me, I don't know if I can, because it's a, we grew up in a small town, yeah, so everybody knew my story, and I remember so many people saying to me, "Oh, I don't know if I can come talk to you about my depression or my bipolar or yeah. my housing situation," and I said the very same thing. Like, actually, we have this very shared human experience right now because this is what is in this is the roadblock in your life. This is the pain. This is the pressing issues. This is the thing that you are journeying through. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. It's also a real gift to talk to other people about their stuff. Yeah. Because no matter what it is, it helps you sort of recognize yourself. Yeah. Like sometimes when I'm in my most pain, I can't really deal with it because I didn't deal with it a lot then. I sort of learned how to like smooth it over like real pretty icing and show up in a different way, which I'm glad I learned how to do. But it was being drawn back to someone who was like fully immersed in their grief or their pain or their yeah. upset that helped me learn what it looked like to do that. Yes. So I needed them to freak out about their mom and sick curfew. I, did, I didn't know how to do that. Right. I had no idea how to be a rebellious teenager or how to be pissed off about a grade. Because I, I didn't have any perspective for that. Just had to be smooth yeah. and caretaking and yeah. so keep it low. There's no good or bad in yeah. any of this. There's none. Yeah. There's, you know, and there's no like, ooh, I was so wise as such a young child. I mean, I had some graceful moments. Yeah. I had plenty of super ungraceful moments in my life after that. Like, Welcome to yeah. the human race. Rami and I explored what it was like for her to hold space for her own grief. She was a teenager. She had a younger sister. And she was watching her mom go through the very long process of losing her husband to the ravages of Lou Gehrig's disease. We discussed the complexity of what it means to attend to your own grief when you are surrounded by other people you love who are grieving too. Um, it's a, it's a great question and it's a great, uh, it was a great moment for me in a way because it was something that I lost sight of completely out after I went on to sort of my next life, I guess is how I think about it, right? And I lost sight of this, this piece that I had found in myself and in, and, um, and I got immersed in trying to take care of people all the time, which is so interesting that I became a photographer because I basically had to re-navigate all of that right back to how I learned to be at that particular moment when we were at my dad's funeral. So to explain that, we had 
the experience of creating this funeral, we didn't have like a structure in our family, like a tradition. So we also had to create, yeah, Yeah. we had to create the funeral. We didn't have any sort of fallback of either religion. So we got immersed in a creative process with each other about like, Designing, producing a producing. funeral. Well, interesting given you know, where your careers I, went. You and right. your sister, right? right? We both went into making media making, um, and and with all this love and care, like with all this in in place, um, and as also as a way to keep busy, kind of yeah, what to do with ourselves. But one of the interesting things was the funeral definitely included all the people who had both shown up the whole way through and the people who hadn't. And my mother and sister and I, none of us, I mean, because I know I'm making us sound like we were such graceful, gracious people, and we were sometimes, but we were also not above just petty, you know, jealousy and irritation and judgment of people who let us down. It's not usually specifically around that thing, but like, there were in life people who had fights with my mom who had sort of disappeared and then were the, there was stuff. Mm -hmm. And they all came and we wanted them to be there. We wanted them to honor my dad and their own relationship with my dad. So we knew that. So we didn't want to insert our own stuff, and we also didn't have any desire to take care of other people or to have any of them take care of us. So it was a fascinating experience of just being simply there and being gracious and grateful and having our own grief, but having like, like kind of amazing parallel? boundaries around it. Like we didn't feel the need to take care of people. I didn't. Yeah. I don't know my mom's experience. She yeah. maybe did. And there was a very interesting moment at the actual burial when someone who got up to do um, a reading of a Zen poem um, began this poem and a breeze picked the piece of paper up and it went through the air and sort of in this circular, like almost like it was, you know, an illustration instead of an actual thing happening. And then it went directly into the coffin. And the person who was reading the poem, Manny, said, well... There you go. I think that was the poem. And only he, myself, my mother, and my sister heard this. Everyone else couldn't grasp what was happening. They weren't close enough. We were sitting in the front. And we started laughing hysterically. But because we were in front of everybody, and because we thought it was perfect, that was like perfect. It was like my dad's sense of humor to the letter, um, just a gift from the universe. Uh, We just needed to laugh, and it was so beautiful and funny and and that moment was all ours and everyone behind us thought we were sobbing so we just let it be you know we just were like yeah and you didn't try to make it anything that it was Mm -hmm. you know name it or explain it or anything it just was yeah what an interesting yeah I can almost imagine a little banter between Manny and and your dad and you guys like I got this I know what you're gonna say let's just you're yeah. here in this moment. Oh, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And I think that... And a gift of laughter in a, in a moment where yeah. you couldn't have ever imagined right. that you would be laughing and smiling. And I think that's been, the, that's been the gift of the story of my dad all the way through, is that there were these moments of undeniable sweetness, love, laughter, presence. So I keep saying I feel lucky because I was able to have those with my family. Everyone showed up for them. I learned how to show up for them. So for me, loss and grief came with those things as well. And so I do feel very lucky because I don't think it always gets to go that way. I know sometimes people get to have that after. Yeah. But I think if we can have life where it's all happening in the same room. It's and. It's and. It's and not you keep forcing going. you to make choices about yeah. as if you can compartmentalize your yeah. life. Or that it makes more meaning. I, I have to be sad and be sad all the time. And then that's really somehow honoring the experience yes. and if I laugh or have joy or I'm distracted then I'm not truly yeah. present to the grief or acknowledging the pain or yes thank you exactly what I'm trying to navigate yeah. towards yeah I don't feel like it's one hard baked thing that is just a pocket of grief I feel like that story has a lot of other things in it and I wish for other people that possibility whenever it is present and sometimes it's yeah. not and sometimes there's just hard, cold grief, and there's nothing to do but experience that until you're through. Yeah. But my hope is that as much as we can aerate grief and, and loss with laughter and tenderness in the moments where you show up and connect, the more hope we have for ourselves and each other, you know? I mean, we're all on this, we're all on this journey. We're all going to be there. Yeah. Number one cause of, of death is life. Living. Yeah. yeah. It's living. Yeah. So we're all... 
we're all going to be the one lost and we're all going to lose somebody. Yeah. And the number one cause of grief is having had the gift of love. Ooh, yeah. And that is a gift. Yeah. That is a gift. That's really what we're here doing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I am so grateful to Rami Suskin for showing up with humor, vulnerability, and a deep sense of curiosity. Thank you to you, too, our listeners, for bearing witness to our conversation. I hope you were able to see yourself reflected in some small way or perhaps learn something that will help you as you support someone you love. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and I hope you join us again soon for another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch.